has Dominic Cummings, the enigmatic mastermind behind the Vote Leave campaign, and Boris Johnson's right-hand man, made a monumental political mistake. Did you return to Durham in April? Lots of people wanting to know this morning. Can I ask you, while I'm keeping my distance, how many times have you left London during the lockdown? Mr. Cummings, the nation would love to know. Since his strange Rose Garden press conference, the demands that Mr Cummings should resign have only grown. I think it certainly exacerbated his situation, but Dominic Cummings won't care about that. He has never been in politics to make friends. He is famously unclubbable and doesn't believe in that way of doing things. So who is the man behind the turmoil? Well, there's a surprising window into his soul, his blog. He writes like a sort of brilliant teenager who's keeping a diary. He's always kind of getting his own back on people, taking revenge. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. And I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the blog, the science, the drive. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, this is what we know. On the 31st of March, Dominic Cummings drove from London to Durham, some 260 miles. Advisor Dominic Cummings has denied doing anything wrong when he drove to his parents' home during the lockdown. Dominic Cummings broke the rules. The country can see that, and it's shocked the government cannot. Calls for Dominic Cummings to resign continue to grow inside Boris Johnson's own party. Police announced they would take no further action against the advisor over his trip from London to County Durham during lockdown. Hi there. Sorry I'm late. It's an absolutely insane situation. Stephen Swinford is Deputy Political Editor of The Times. I cannot envisage any Cabinet Minister ever being allowed to do an address from the Rose Garden, let alone someone who's not actually an elected MP. We've never seen anything like it. The last time we saw the Rose Garden news was obviously under the coalition with David Cameron and Nick Clegg. So it was a pretty extraordinary moment. There were huge issues around both his original long 260-mile trip and the visit to the local beauty spot, which was a half an hour drive away from where he was, both of which appeared to be kind of transparent breaches of the lockdown. So from where I was sitting, cabinet ministers were furious. I had texts from one cabinet minister while it was taking place who was saying to me, my jaw is dropping. He thinks we're all plebs. And another cabinet minister sent me a message with just a vomit emoji. So there was a huge tide of fury and it it felt like the government had to do something to address it. They had cabinet that day. It was not discussed specifically. The prime minister said there'd be more later without actually telling ministers what was going to happen. And then we started to get whispers or word that there'd be this rose garden statement from Dominic Cummings himself. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. Yesterday I gave a full account to the Prime Minister of my actions 
between the 27th of March and the 14th of April, what I thought and did. And he's asked me to repeat that account directly to you. I know that millions of people... And no one really knew what he had to say and knew what he would say. One of the things people were asking is, what's he going to wear? Is he going to turn up in a T-shirt? Downing Street knew they had to do something pretty extraordinary to try to put this to bed. And I'm not sure they did succeed in putting it to bed. No, I don't. I don't regret um, what, what I did. As I, as I said, I think um, you know, reasonable people may well disagree about how I th thought about what to do in in in, all, in the in the in these circumstances. But I think that I think that what I did was actually reasonable in these um, in these circumstances. Dominic Cummings talked for hours, but a lack of contrition and a lack of an expression of regret is still costing the government. And they will be hoping that events will overtake this. And has that sort of fury you've heard, has that abated at all since then? Has it got any better? No, I, I think his performance in the Rose Garden exacerbated it. And in particular, you've seen a huge surge in the number of Tory MPs who have come out and publicly called for him to resign. And it's just the sheer breadth of... Tory MPs that is going to be concerning number 10. So you're looking at Brexiteers, people that were Remainers during the referendum, you're looking at grandees, you're looking at new MPs. It's across the length and breadth of the party, the message is coming through loud and clear that Cummings should go. And the reason that all of these MPs are doing that is because they have a duty to their constituents and they are being flooded with emails from their constituents. They say they've never seen anything like it. One MP who received a particularly large number of emails about gay marriage, when gay marriage was legalised, that was a big issue in conservative circles and among activists. They were saying this has easily eclipsed that. So they're getting more messages on this than they've had on anything. And, and it, that they have to respond to their constituents and, and to that moral outrage that their constituents are feeling. Do you think it has made it worse for Dominic Cummings that he spent so much of his career making enemies in the party? I think it's certainly exacerbated his situation. And yes, it has made things worse, but Dominic Cummings won't care about that. He has never been in politics to make friends. He is famously unclubbable and doesn't believe in, in the gossip and, and that way of doing things. But he does have one very important friend, which is the Prime Minister. And the Prime Minister has unswerving faith in Dominic Cummings and has used his own political capital, very significant political capital, to defend Mr Cummings and effectively to save his job. Cummings had this kind of reputation as the dark knight, <laughs> the brute, the kind of bringer of chaos, or the brilliant reformer. Ian Leslie is a writer and journalist who has been following the career of Dominic Cummings from the very beginning of his first role in Westminster, working for the then Education Secretary, Michael Gove. I met him a couple of times. Because you've heard all these rumours about him being this kind of wild man with crazy staring eyes or whatever, and you meet him and he's like, you know... He's he's a very kind of alive guy. You know, he's very kind of vivid presence, uh, as you would expect, right? I do remember sitting down with him for a coffee and almost from the first question, which I probably asked him a very bland, boring question about what was going on politically. I just remember kind of like sitting, thinking for a few seconds and then saying, well, I think if we go back to, to Bismarck, and and it, that was a kind of, you know, the conversation with him. He's always kind of thinking in these quite grandiose terms about the political situation, which, yeah, is eccentric and odd, but it's also quite, you know, exciting and, and, and interesting. 
Taking a step backwards, what do we know about where he comes from? Well, he grew up in Durham and then Cummings went to Oxford and he studied ancient and modern history. He was taught by a great historian, Norman Stone. The great right-wing historian. The great right conservative historian, Norman Stone. I think humanities graduates and arts graduates, they either go two ways. They either go, okay, well, I'm, I'm not interested in, in maths and science. That's for boring people. Or they even go to the other extreme and they sort of fetishize people who are mathematicians or scientists or, or have some sort of technical expertise. And I think he's kind of gone the other way. You mean a bit like Labour politicians sometimes used to really fetishise people in business because they knew they understood nothing about it? Yeah, and and you know, to a certain extent, he does that as well. And he, of course, he's never been a scientist, so he's actually kind of really almost over glamorised these kind of areas of human endeavour that he doesn't really have much experience of. So, what do we know about him once he leaves university with his big degree in ancient history? So the next big event in his his career and really what makes his reputation in politics is that he works for a campaign against joining the euro. I don't think he can quite claim to have been the person that staved that off, but he was seen to have run an effective campaign. He then pops up again when he runs another campaign against Blair. (laughs) So he's one of these kind of people who was a kind of low-level enemy of, of, of Blair when the Blair government tried to introduce regional assemblies and there was a referendum in the northeast and whether or not they should have a regional assembly and Cummings kind of ran the campaign against it and ended up winning a, a decisive victory. I think after that point, people in conservative circles really kind of recognised him as this very effective, you know, perhaps eccentric, perhaps slightly difficult guy, but a guy who can win stuff. Dominic Cummings, uh, effectively the senior advisor to the Prime Minister. You can see him just there, running across the Downing Street and out the back gate. One of the most extraordinary things about the Dominic Cummings uh, 260-mile journey to Durham is how shrouded in secrecy it was. So we saw Dominic Cummings running out of Downing Street, looking panicked. We obviously asked what's going on with Dominic. It eventually emerged that he did have coronavirus. I think the words Downing Street used at the time were that he's, he's not at work, he's at home. So we all assumed, therefore, that he was at home in London. We are instructing people to stay at home so that we can protect our NHS and save lives. So please, stay at home. People should stay at home. Stay home. By staying at home, we can protect our NHS and save lives. You must stay at home to protect the NHS and to save lives. Whatever the temptations. It's only when witnesses emerged in Durham suggesting that, in fact, he was 260 miles away in that period that we learned that he he wasn't here. And if it wasn't for those witnesses coming forward, you, you have to wonder, would this ever have come out? So what is it about Dominic Cummings that seems to have made him invaluable to Boris Johnson and his government? Ian and I spent some time looking back at his now infamous old blogs, most of which, recent controversies aside, remain unedited. We wondered if they might be the key to working it out. I probably started following it most closely in this period when he'd been sort of ejected from government, was no longer working for Gove. And this is probably towards the end of the era of classic blogging. But 
he was using his blogs to post these kind of huge, long, undisciplined, really, but interesting essays on everything that he was thinking about, which was a lot. October 2013. Most of those who now dominate discussions of issues such as social mobility entirely ignore genetics and therefore their arguments are at best misleading and often worthless. However, using... So the, the relationship between Gove and Cummings is really interesting. Well, there's a kind of bright side and a, and a slightly darker side. The bright side is they both genuinely care about education, right? Gove really passionately believed that the government was letting people down and that the education system was letting working class kids down in particular. And Gove decided, if we're going to do a big program of reform, I need somebody who's going to go in there and just, you know, break a few walls down. I need this kind of wild guy by my side. When people look at the gaps between rich and poor children that already exist at a young age, uh, three to five, they almost universally assume that these differences are because of environmental reasons, privileges of wealth, and ignore genetics. That was from a leaked essay that found its way into The Guardian and caused a sensation. Why did it cause such a big fuss? Well, anytime you talk about genetics and education, there is a big fuss because people just associate it with the eugenics project. Which is the idea that somehow you can improve people's genetic quality. Exactly, which was a very popular theory in the kind of early part of the, of the 20th century. But then it sort of bled into fascism. November 2013. On the evening of Friday the 11th, October 2013, The Guardian published a draft essay of mine, some thoughts on education and political priorities. It describes A, some fundamental aspects of the world that make it complex and inherently hard to predict, and B, some problems with political institutions and the education and training of those who control and influence them that compound this inherent complexity. Now, that's Dominic Cummings responding to the criticisms of his essay. What what do you read into that? Well, you can see him starting to kind of put together this theory, which is we are educating children in the wrong way. We're not giving them a sufficiently broad technical and scientific as well as a, a humanities education. And the consequence of that is that the government is now run by people who are just out of their depth. They don't have statistical training. They don't have kind of background in science. And they are just grappling with a world that they fundamentally do not understand. surprising that sort of somebody who knew how dangerous the situation is then ends up behaving the way he does and, and muddying the water when it comes to the messaging for for the whole of the country. I think you've hit the heart of the story. This guy set the message, stay at home, save lives. The fact that he then took action, which appears to be in breach of those guidelines or at the very least seems to, to stretch those rules is what, what has upset people so much. But there is a bigger question here, which is when we eventually get some kind of public inquiry, if we do after all of this, what role did he play in the decision about when to go into lockdown on March the 23rd, which was the key decision and, and certainly in hindsight should have come earlier. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Dominic Cummings has been at the very heart of some of the biggest political moments in Britain for the last five years. And uh, pandemic aside, none were bigger than the question of Europe. October 2015. For many decades, Whitehall has deceived itself and deceived the public about the true nature of the EU project. Their ability to keep doing this is crumbling. And then along comes the Brexit referendum. What do we know about how he got chosen to be such an important part of the campaign to come out of the European Union? Those guys realised that they needed somebody who was very good at running a team. The really interesting dichotomy, I think, is between Cummings as an intellectual and a writer and Cummings as an operator. So as a writer, as an intellectual, he's unfocused. He's kind of all over the place. You know, his blogs are incredibly rambling. They don't really have much of a structure. But in person, as a kind of manager, as a runner of a campaign, he's incredibly focused and decisive and there's kind of structure to everything he does. So I think they knew that they were dealing with somebody who was a little bit unpredictable and volatile and might be, and this might be disastrous and so on. But they kind of thought he was the only guy who could do it. He was pretty instrumental in deciding who was in and out of that campaign, wasn't he? He was, and he was given the the freedom to recruit who he wanted. He recruited some very talented people. They stood by him and were very loyal to him, particularly during this period when the Leave board actually tried to get rid of him because they felt he was just being too controversial. He was getting into too many arguments with MPs. He was kind of saying things in public that were kind of rebounding on them. And so they called him in one day and said, we'd like you to resign. We're going to tell everyone that you're going on paternity leave. And he turned that around effectively by saying, if I resign, you know half the staff are going to resign too. And it's going to be a disaster for all of you for this campaign. And they said, what? And he said, yes. And then they said, can you persuade them not to leave? And he said, what, you want to fire me and then help you fire me effectively? What are you talking about? And they tested this, you know, went to talk to these people and said, are you really going to leave it? And they said, yeah. So they were loyal to him. They liked working for him. And they, above all, they thought he was the only guy that could make this thing work. The British people have spoken and the answer is, we're out. The sun has risen on an independent, united kingdom. I love this country and I feel honoured to have served it. And I will do everything I can in future to help this great country succeed. June the 23rd needs to become a national bank holiday and we will call it Independence Day. July 2016. Dear XXX, we took back control. Last week, you changed the course of history. Vote Leave took on almost every force with power and money and we won. Britain chose to leave. That's very different from the earlier blog, which is full of ideas and almost kind of revolutionary thoughts. It feels to me just completely different in tone and approach. Yeah, it's very sincere, very direct. And you get in it the sense of his anti 
establishment radicalism, right, which is not a classical Tory rhetoric. And a lot of his intellectual sneering and snobbery is bound up with his feeling that a lot of the elite that run the country just don't deserve to be there. Good afternoon. This, this morning I, I went to Buckingham Palace and I am forming a new government. And yes, they will have an overwhelming mandate from this election to get Brexit done and we will honour... And it came to pass when Boris Johnson got in touch with him and said, would you like to effectively run my government to be chief of staff? So now he is really in the position where the two sides of him, the intellectual and the operator, meet. This is his chance to show that all those blogs were not just blogs, but they were actually practical ideas and that he can actually transform government. This has obviously been an extremely awkward moment for Boris Johnson but he's still loyally sticking by Dominic Cummings. Boris would not be Prime Minister now if Vote Leave had not won that campaign, and Vote Leave would not have won that campaign without Dominic Cummings. So Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings are inextricably linked from that moment on. And then you fast forward to him bringing him into Downing Street, and he helped him deliver Brexit and he helped him to win that election campaign. So he is very, very valuable to the Prime Minister, and that is why he's expended huge political capital now defending him. So if Dominic Cummings is to suddenly go, all that capital is for nothing. But given all the political capital that the Prime Minister has lost over this, why do you think he's been so reluctant to let go of Dominic Cummings? Several reasons. One, he accepts Dominic Cummings' explanation on this, even if others don't. And then... More broadly, he needs him. I mean, if Dominic Cummings leaves Downing Street, he probably wouldn't go alone. There's Lee Kane, the Director of Communications. There's Oliver Miles, the policy guru. There's a clutch of four or five people. One thing that Dominic Cummings has done throughout his career, he might be hated by his enemies, but for those working with him, they are incredibly, ferociously loyal to him. And he does inspire loyalty in in those that believe in what he's doing. And I, I think there would be a risk of that. January. 2020. We want to hire an unusual set of people with different skills and backgrounds to work in Downing Street with the best officials. The categories are roughly data scientists and software developers, economists, policy experts, project managers, communication experts, junior researchers, one of whom who will also be my personal assistant, and weirdos and misfits with odd skills. And that's the now famous Dominic Cummings job description for the people that he would like to bring into Whitehall. What does that tell us about his vision? To me, it tells you that he hasn't really come to grips with what it means to actually run a government, as opposed to uh, sort of rant about it from the edges or, or, or the outside. It suddenly struck me as we were, were listening to that, that it's like a script from a superheroes movie. We need some true wildcards, artists, people who never went to university and fought their way out of an appalling hellhole. Weirdos from William Gibson novels like that Chinese Cuban freerunner from a crime family hired by the KGB. The other kind of interesting point to me about this blog that he wrote was that it's really oddly old-fashioned. 
What government really needs is a bunch of really, really smart guys. Running a government is not like running a hedge fund or, or running NASA. It's about people, right? It's about entrenched interests, the messy stuff of humans interacting with other humans. Those are the problems you need to solve. But he's very impatient of that, isn't it? He thinks that people spend too much time worrying about that stuff instead of doing it. Yeah, but you, the, the reason you can't do it and the reason you can't just solve problems in the way that a mathematician solves a problem is that people are not, you know, abstract numerals. People have emotions and feelings and tribal loyalties and histories and all that kind of stuff. We need to figure out how to use such people better without asking them to conform to the horrors of human resources, which also obviously needs a bonfire. I'll bin you within weeks if you don't fit. Don't complain later, because I made it clear now. He does talk about wanting to sort of smash the old system and Whitehall as it functions. What are his frustrations? I think his frustrations are actually a lot of what you've seen borne out in this crisis. One of the big issues has been the, the kind of siloization of different departments and different responsibilities. Public Health England, which is an arm's length body, which ministers can't direct and can't have a direct say over. The Department of Health, you've then got different responsibilities tying into that with communities, the uh, test and trace programme. Now, where does responsibility for that lie? It's not clear. There's about six different departments that are involved in enacting that policy, and so much so that they've had to set up a new unit, which is a kind of joint biosecurity unit, which is tasked specifically with pulling everyone together and trying to make this work. But you look in the roadmap that the government has published, and there is a very specific section which is on reforming and basically overhauling institutions so that the government can better respond to crises like this in future. So yes, I do expect some kind of leaner, more efficient and less siloed Whitehall to emerge from this. There were stories suggesting that I had opposed lockdown and even that I did not care about many deaths. For years I have warned of the dangers of pandemics. Last year I wrote about the possible threat of coronaviruses and the urgent need for planning. We learnt from his press conference the other day that he'd somehow found time to, to go back to his blog again. Tell me about that. So he said during his press conference that he had previously warned of a coronavirus-type pandemic and had written that in his blog. But actually, when people looked at his blog, the section that dealt with that was actually added to between, I think it was April, May this year. March 2019. The report describes yet another well-publicised incident in China, in which two researchers conducting virus research were exposed to severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS. The researchers subsequently transmitted SARS to others, leading to several infections and one death in 2004. So it was changed quite recently to include that passage. So people are asking... Why has he done that? Now, Downing Street sources are suggesting, well, he did have a link to this work on the pandemic and he's just putting the, the stuff in there. But the, the question that Dominic Cummings' critics are saying is, are you effectively rewriting history here in terms of what you've said in the past? What does that tell us about him as a person? I think it tells us that he thinks a lot about his blog still, even though he's in government and running the country and thinks that this is my platform, this is my space. Most people would struggle to read it because it's very, very dense and the arguments sometimes get incoherent and they go off on tangents, they go all over. It's not an easy read, right? But he obviously sees it as an important place to lodge 
his brain, if you like. This is my thought process. And there is stuff that can be gleaned from it. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and David Aronovich, and our guests, The Times Deputy Political Editor, Stephen Swinford, and the writer and journalist, Ian Leslie. You can read more of Stephen's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Ben Mitchell and Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Leo Hornack, and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by James Shield. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. You can subscribe for free. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. In these uncertain times, you can keep up to date and well informed on the coronavirus and so much more every day with a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe to find out more. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 